One boy of mixed race finds himself forced out of adolescence into adulthood, still never knowing if he's black enough. This unresolved question of identity splits his mind and causes him to analyze and reanalyze everything he does and everything that's said by people around him. Eventually pushed so far, he falls off the edge of society into the hands of law enforcement. Now he must choose who he is before the world chooses for him. The book, Black Card, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit. Hi readers, this is Kari. This is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm doing great. Are you really? good? I like to hear that. Anything <laughs> popping off this week? You know, Anything special? Absolutely nothing, because you know I'm not leaving the house. So, <laughs> but, yeah, but, okay, we got to talk on. about this. All right. Okay. When are you going to leave the house? Why do I have to leave the house? <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I understand you want to be cautious, as we all need to be. Life is involved. That's serious. But, okay. like, you ain't, I mean, we can't go to a picnic or nothing? <clears throat> I don't mind being outside. Yeah, let okay, me know the yeah. place of being outside and I'll be outside. Yeah, no, outside. that makes sense. <laughs> it's okay. just indoors. You're not kicking it. You're not going to restaurants like I'm everyone not going else to seems to be doing. Mm-hmm. Me neither. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready going for that. to pieces, people's homes. Um, yeah. And my daughter wants to come and I'm like. <sighs> yeah, my mom said I can't come see her. That's and this what was I'm before saying. Corona, so I don't know what her problem is. <laughs> Just because I eat all her food and take all her money. I'm her child. Mm. Oh, shoot. I'd like to say that, too. But then somebody's going to say that about me. So That's I have no right. comment there. <laughs> you got a mama, too. Exactly. Exactly. I got no, it coming I... from both ends. A mama and a child, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like you're being very uh, responsible. You know, everyone's eager to take advantage of summer before it's over. And I get mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But again, life is involved. Like, how serious is it? So, yeah. How about you? Did anything happen? I'm sorry. No, you did. Um, no, nah, girl. Um, no, I've been working from home a little bit. I heard, um, I don't know if I said this on the show, but I heard someone else mention we should stop calling it work from home and start calling it live at work because that's exactly oh. what it feels like. Oh, my goodness. That's a right? good one. Oh, I know because you goodness. feel like, you know, maybe I don't need a vacation because I've been working from home. No, I need a vacation. I need a break. Yep. Um, so mm-hmm. at work, they sent out a notice and said, um, like we get a weekly email and they said, y'all should take some vacations. Take Is that sense of the lawyers too or all the professionals that work Everybody. There? Yeah, that firm. makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't want no tired lawyer on my case. Y'all take them <laughs> vacation. <laughs> well, so their vacation is set up a little different. They can leave whenever they want to. Ultimately, okay, okay. it was directed to the staff. You, because, you guys. Uh, yeah, because they can take So are you going to take want. a vacation? I mean, I take time off all the time. So. Yeah, you do. That's so smart. You, uh-huh. yeah, you, you stagger it really well throughout the year. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now, readers, it's time for Society Says. Whoop, whoop. And that is the point of the show where we share your comments with the rest of our Lit Society. Um, so, Alexis, is there a comment you'd like to share that we received uh, recently that was particularly lit? Hey, yes. <laughs> so I um, was traveling through our IG page and came Yeah, I know that's it. the only way you travel in these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Took a look at that and I saw a comment related to our book, Men We Reet. Oh. Um, this is from Shugab. I hope I'm saying it right. And she said, I so enjoyed this review with you, ladies. I recently read Salvage the Bones by Jasmine. And even though I tried to stay engaged, it was painfully boring. I couldn't connect to the read at all. I am going to have to read Men We Reaped because just listening to your thoughts gave me 
all the feels. I'm willing to give Miss Ward another try. So Ooh, thanks for I like sharing. That. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, wasn't that cool? Yeah, because I can understand. I mean, Jasmine is very like um, matter of fact in the way she writes. She's not you know, trying to editorialize life, <laughs> if that makes sense. So uh-huh. I can understand that might not work with every reader, but we really enjoyed that book, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. That yeah, and a- we reap specifically. So reader, mm-hmm. I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks for giving uh, Miss Jasmine Ward another shot. She's awesome. So Kari, did you find anything from our Society of Readers? Yeah, actually, I'm going to go away from our friends, the readers, and go straight to the establishment because Apple Podcasts featured us in their list of bookish podcasts this week, last <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, wow. so they sent out a tweet saying, we asked for your book podcast recommendations and you delivered. Thanks for helping us build a collection of bookish shows just in time for Book Lovers Day. And hashtag Book Lovers Day was last Sunday. So thank you, Apple. And thank you to everyone who mentioned us. That includes... Yes. Yeah, right. Colored yeah. Pages Book Club podcast. Um, Black Chick Lit mentioned us. Um, a few, if I don't uh, remember your name off the top of my head, I'm so sorry. I mean, uh, Rebel but Women thanks Lit. thanks for mentioning us. We appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. That's a big um, deal. Yeah. So, and a lot of you guys, I mean, like we said, there's like a community forming around the show of people who read books and you guys were already there before our podcast started. So we didn't make the community, but thank you for embracing us and mm-hmm. allowing us. I mean, Rebel Women Lit, I feel like it's always saying something good about us on the internet. So we love you. We feel so accepted. So, we finally got a click. Yay. It only took uh, 25 years or however <laughs> old I am. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Alexis, as you know, I've been trying to get us canceled for weeks because it's good for publicity. And I think I may have figured out how with this week's theme of the week. So each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss based on or inspired by the book that we're reading. So this week, the theme is how do you know you're black? Specifically, what makes a person black American, i.e. black? What do you think, Alexis? Ooh, what makes a person black American? Mm-hmm. Is that like a thing? Oh, is it even a thing? I mean, sh- I mean, how do I describe well, myself? I'm getting so much trouble with this. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're eager. I, yeah, I how knew do you that describe was your yourself? way of doing How do you describe it? yourself? You know, you never grew up eating, um, you know, black American foods. Are yeah. you even black then? <laughs> so I, <laughs> I ask that about you every day. I Are you up black? Like that. I grew up with that. I grew up with that. And I don't, I don't have shame. <laughs> That's right, right. Many times I have been asked that question. So how <laughs> Not do I me. describe I'm just... myself? I, I don't know. I'm a, you know, what's the question again? I'm confused. So the don't question is... Nothing I said either. Don't include it. <laughs> so the question is, how do you know you're black? Specifically, what makes a person black American? Um, can I bring in a so-called expert? Yes, please do. <laughs> Help me define myself. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so in his book, Who is Black? Retired professor of sociology at Illinois State University. Hey, F. James Davis wrote the following. And I thought he was very concise and economical in his definition. Readers, let us know what you think about this. He says to be considered black in the United States, not even half of one's ancestry must be African black. But will one fourth do or one eighth or less? The nation's answer to that question, who is black? has long been that a black person is any person with any known African black ancestry. This definition reflects the long experience with slavery and later with Jim Crow segregation. Now I'll insert here. He's talking about the one drop rule. And that is, um, and I, that is like a ideology that has faded socially. So we don't necessarily, you know, if you're great, 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 great grandmother was black and everyone in your immediate family looks white as part of white culture or their culture and does not identify with black culture, then usually socially we won't identify those people as black as black people. 
Um, so, but, mm-hmm. so his description has to do with um, a percentage of um, your parentage, right? Essentially. So, and how but that percentage that? can be so small, according to the one drop rule. And this rule was needed to reinforce, um, first of all, slavery mm-hmm. and then later Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And then to divide people up in some parts of the country as even colored black or white. These type of designations were completely made up. When you think of people like Frederick Douglass or um, people who were maybe had white fathers, but black mothers because of um, rape under slavery, frankly, those men were still considered black as we would consider them black today. But if they had a great, great grandmother during Jim Crow that society found out, their immediate society found out was black, their family would be considered as colored. And then the society could build themselves up by pushing that family down. <laughs> so that makes sense when did he make um, that statement? When did he? So do he that? is he is referring to the one drop rule, but he does apply it further. This was um, this book was written, I think, in the 90s. So it is to oh, be okay. for our time. Okay. Um, but he continues this American cultural definition of blacks is taken for granted as readily by judges, affirmative action officers, black protesters, as it is by the Ku Klux Klan. It should now be apparent that the definition of a black person as one with any trace at all of black African ancestry is inextricably woven into the history of the United States. It incorporates beliefs once used to justify slavery, like we said, and later used to buttress the caste like system of Jim Crow um, of segregation. Not only does the one drop rule apply to no other group than American blacks, but apparently Mm -hmm. the rule is unique in that it's found only in the United States and not in any other nation in the world. Um, So end quote. Now the takeaway from that being black American means that you descend from a people killed or kidnapped by colonizers during America's slave trade, period. And this is where it gets murky. It means that if your parents and grandparents and their parents were born in Africa, but you were born in America, you are not black American. You are African. It also means that if one of your parents were born in, let's say they were born in Ireland and their family is Irish, English and Polish. But the other parent can trace their ancestry to a person forced to work under the American slave trade system. You are black. And what and is that your definition? That's what I'm uh, that is my definition. And it's what I'm taking from um, this professor and, oh, that's and right, you did the other like accepted uh, views of what defines black people. And this this is why this concept is nonsensical to most of the world. And with good reason, because if a poor person is born in the United States, but came from a family of Germans, they're white. But they also might identify as German-American. And that makes sense. That's accepted. Here lies an innate, often um, discussed but still overlooked evil of the slave trade. It stripped an entire population of people from their mother tongue, faith, culture, music, Mm -hmm. for many, even a knowledge of which country their family came from. It brought them to a strange new world under harsh, oppressive Uh, evil demonic conditions Mm -hmm. but it was here that these people formed a new culture a new language even new music and new expression what they created was like an amalgamation of what they remembered from home and the beauty they uh, were able to create while under the hand of unspeakable evil so this combination formed a new culture entirely this is a new group of people um, and so much of what is American, like the way we prepare our food, even um, our music, our dance would not exist if it wasn't for this specific group of people. Uh, But for decades, there was no name to identify them. No um, name given to their culture, to this new culture, to this new people, these slaves and their descendants. Um, Black became popular in the civil rights movement. And Mm -hmm. it's it is how I identify myself. I don't consider myself uh, really African-American. I do consider myself black American because my parents descended from those specific people. 
Um, but when I tell Canadians, for example, that I'm black, they respond like, oh, yeah, no. But where are you from? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. I've heard that said before. Yeah. This is an anomaly for the United States specifically, right. this this type of designation. Um, so, yeah, I'm from those slaves that turned malevolence into opportunity. I am black. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, for a lot of people, they feel like, well, how can you identify as black? I've had hardship, too. <laughs> You know, my people have suffered too. Why do you feel like you should receive a designation? This isn't about privilege of any type. It's the category used to define a specific group of people. And those definitions are in a way necessary um, for anthropological research, real, mm -hmm. just basic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, listen, everyone has hardships. All people have had to overcome something. And, you know, a balanced measure of pride in where we come from helps us see the value in other cultures. So Absolutely. I'm not trying to put anyone up above anyone else. <laughs> Don't be mad at science, please, or you know, at cultural studies, please. <laughs> it is also Don't true. Don't come that, for her, Terry Crews. <laughs> it's also true. <laughs> it's also true that you know, black and brown people from all ethnic groups struggle with colorism and prejudice, and mm -hmm. even within black culture, yes. um, people struggle with colorisms. So. Um, but the black American experience is unique and often hard to understand for people. And I want to give some examples. There's a blogger you and I follow, and she posted a photo where she's allowing Italians in Italy to touch her hair. Mm -hmm. And this photo has set the Internet on fire twice. Do you know what I'm referring yes, to? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> and the comments under it are like, how can you let them people touch your hair? You're not a dog. Don't you know, don't let people treat you like you don't have um like agency, like don't right. let them take your agency. And those feelings are justifiably very tied to the black American experience where people have grown up around you, where their family has grown up around you and they either haven't cared enough to learn about your culture. Actually, no, that's just it. They haven't cared they enough haven't. to learn about your culture. Period. But you as the minority have to know something about other cultures. Exactly. <laughs> so feelings come with that. However, it is a specifically black American um type of not to say that this doesn't happen to other cultures and other places but black americans often feel like don't touch my hair because without asking me especially because we often find people petting us <laughs> in the street oh. <laughs> and it's crazy yeah <laughs> but going to another country have you ever had someone approach you wanting to touch your hair or skin and how did you feel about that I, I, nothing stands out to me i've had many experiences in other country but i, I don't think um uh, touching my hair was one of them. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. That one doesn't stand out to me. What stands out to you? Uh, other approaches, you know, yeah. of the physical kind. Oh, so inappropriate. Yes. Okay. So other, you, you have found other, you have found people that's actually, a, you know, worse invading your oh, sure. personal my bubble personal and touching your body. So yeah, no, that I completely understand. Um, That goes against like a, uh, respect for someone else's humanity. <laughs> yeah. So you don't see me as a person. Yeah. Yeah. And so wherever you are, if you don't want people touching you, that's that's all justified. But if you do travel to somewhere where they haven't seen people who look like you, uh, maybe to an Asian country or even in this case to a European one, and they ask you if you can touch your hair, that is not necessary. If they can touch your hair, that does not necessarily come with all the baggage it would come with here. And so she chose to let them touch her hair. Yeah. And it was a respectful interchange where they asked and she allowed them to. I thought she they they did not ask. They just started petting and she let it go. Don't listen to me then because I thought they asked her. Mm. It was Keep something your more to yourself. Mm -hmm. Number two. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. 
Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, just in her recent post of it, she said it was floating the internet again and she wanted right. to bring it to attention because, and she specified in her uh, caption that they did not ask, but she decided that wasn't a battle she needed to fight at that moment. That's what okay. I remember. And that was her personal choice. Right, right. Because everybody doesn't feel like that. I do not want to be pet. Yeah. Don't. You know, it's weird because if you're my friend <laughs> and you ask me if you can touch my hair, I might be okay with that. But a stranger off the street, I would like really, I don't even know why you're talking to me. I don't know why strangers like to talk to you. Yeah. So it was just weird. <laughs> Let's start with that. But you know what? I had a friend here and she's of a different race and she um she just touched um my hair. She was just kind of just touching it. You know, if you stand next to somebody and you see their hair and you just touch it, I guess yeah. that happens. That's what she was doing. And you told her, Don't be touching her hair. She ain't no <laughs> sound like me. Culture police, stop touching her hair, please. I don't care if we've known you forever stop doing that that's terrible <laughs> see i got my own baggage <laughs> was like, I, do. I don't know you, if that's me. crazy you didn't even have a problem with it but i had a problem with it and felt like i needed to voice it because it was bothering me so much yeah that sounds like me i saying is right <laughs> let's move on before you bust me out about something else well, I, was, I was such a militant child I'm still trying okay so example number two I want to bring up a quote by Fat Joe that was circling its way and if you don't know he's an artist um, but he said this Latinos are black in Cuba at one time there were 8 million Cubans 5 million unfortunately were slaves 3 million were actual Cubans and the integrated had babies he explained he continued same thing with Puerto Rico you talk about Santeria, that came from the motherland, Africa. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Latinos may even identify themselves with African and black culture more than black people. This ain't no crazy thing. Fat Joe ain't no ain't on crack. <laughs> Fat Joe ain't on crack, he says. <laughs> be wary of people who be like, me in third person ain't on crack. It's real cracky. Um, and then he finishes, he knows, talking about himself, he knows what he's talking about. What you think of that statement? Are Latinos, Latinx community members black? Uh um, yeah, I think some more than others, but like I've watched some documentaries, read some stuff and it, you know, it talked about how the slaves, the old enslaved folks were brought to many of the island countries and they were populated there. So like from Mexico, I feel like they say that everybody has a percentage of blackness or African um heritage in them of course of course many cultures have within them people who have descended from africa mm -hmm. that does not identify them as black americans and this designation no, i agree is, i know is that you're what not. you were saying that i know you're not mixing the two but this is a conversation that comes oh. up often okay um that fat joe is even bringing up here i can't believe i said that the professor fat joe has even <laughs> mentioned um saying flat out latinos are black now let's get get this clear Afro-Latinas and Latinos exist and thrive Absolutely. everywhere all mm -hmm. over the world. That is never going to be debated by me and hopefully not by anybody and else. And not me either. I believe it. Right. Right. But the Black American culture is specifically just a different designation of Black. It's not a higher Black or a lower Black. Black Americans are Black Americans. Afro-Latinos are Afro-Latinos, period. That's so, true. I feel like he's confusing here. Basically, this is like to me a conversation you have to justify the use of one word that you really want to say. Ah, <laughs> and well. so you uh, mix two things to try to find. You take two and two and say that makes 63. And here's why. So, you know, eh, whatever. That's his burden to bear. Number three. Read an 
Aura. <laughs> Did oh. you see the internet snapping over Rita Aura? Recently. You know, she likes to wear braids and afros, but she's yes. Albanian. Yes. Apparently, some people feel lied to. <laughs> yes, she is this Albanian. Is all over the internet. <laughs> I, I do remember a situation that came up in the past about her, nothing recently. Yeah. Are you talking yeah, about something so, recent? Mm-hmm. So people feel like, well, black is the way you look. And so all this time, I guess they thought some people thought Albanian Rita Ora was black. No, that's not <laughs> what black means. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> when I think of um, what's Quincy Jones' daughter? Uh, Rashida Jones. So, OK, Rashida Jones and her sister have talked about um, her sister is darker than her. And Rashida Jones could, quote unquote, pass for white and does in a lot of work that she does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think she played an Italian on The Office. So, I mean, get your coins. Um, but <laughs> that is that the way you look does not make you black. All of this, I am saying, um, as it pertains to the book to finalize everything. Um, all of this means that growing up without learning about these specific people, these slaves and their descendants and the culture that they created is growing up without knowledge of your history. There's so much to learn. Um, but if you are black, Truly. it's not about the way you look. You don't need to feel black or act black to be black. You are black always. And that's something that no one can ever take from you. The okay. end. The end. Did you have anything you want to add? <laughs> no, I think about um, uh, one, of the, one of our upcoming books that we'll review um, has a woman whose mother passed, and I believe she passed for white. Right. And I believe she um, her mother, of course, looked white, but I believe she was half, um, you know, mother and father. One was black, one was white. I believe that was Mm -hmm. her situation. But her mother married a white man and she looks she looks white. She looks white. But she said in her one of her interviews that she um, she was raised as a white woman and acknowledges herself as a white woman but recognizes her cultural background, something like that, something to that effect. Okay. But she looks white. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a population of black Americans that look white. Those black Americans that look white did not form a new people, a new culture of passing Americans. And you can keep your Jack and Jill jokes to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are confused about the difference, just think of it like you would think of um, someone that came from Germany who has um, a parent that's Irish and that live in this country. They consider themselves white. But they're German, Irish, American, and that is fine. They are not denying a part of themselves. That is just how they are identified on paper. And it means that um, they can once they can call a name to their culture, it opens the door to explore that culture and document it for generations to come. And so for black Americans specifically, it's always been so important to document who we are, um, what we've done, because there is a group of people actively trying to erase that. <laughs> um, so that's where a lot of emotion can come in and people feel like uh, they have to protect the race and tell you what black people should do and shouldn't do and what's acceptable as black people or what what makes a black person or what what makes a black person yeah like the things you can do that make you black or don't make you black yeah wow yeah so that's it i mean for sure you getting canceled on your side not my sorry (laughs) okay i'll live with it are you ready let's move on let's do it some background on Chris Terry and perhaps his motivation for writing Blackheart? Let me just tell you, I couldn't find nothing about Chris Terry. He don't want to talk about <laughs> himself, okay? That's what I found out. 
what I found was the same blurb over and over and over again. <laughs> and let me tell you what it says. Born okay. in 1979 to an African-American father and an Irish-American mother, Chris earned his BA from Virginia Commonwealth University and a creative writing um, Master of Fine Arts from Columbia College in Chicago. Whoop, whoop. Uh, oh, I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. His <laughs> debut novel was Zero Fade and was named Best Book of the Year by Slate and Kirkus Review. Again, I saw that um, description about him on repeat, but I came across <laughs> an article. Let's see. Writers Who Cook Lentil Soup Empowerment <laughs> with Chris L. Terry. And this is I from April soup. I just 16th. made some yesterday. Oh, I'll, I enjoy I'll it up. too. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, okay. From April 16th of this year. And it, he, he mentions that when he was 18, he moved out of his parents' house into a crumbling Richmond house with seven roommates. And his first step was to learn how to feed himself. He was a vegetarian with a $20 a week grocery budget. And he spent that on beans, grilled cheese, fixings, and tater tots. And sometimes he would scrape some spinach from um, leftover in a pot. But <laughs> so, you know, it's so expensive to be a vegetarian. I'm surprised he he made it $20 a week. Well, yeah, I mean, the stuff that he, it sounds like he was fixing wasn't part of that. That's kind of on the cheap end of food. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very much on the cheap end of food. So um, I, I didn't read the whole article, but he has his uh, um, a recipe for lentil soup that I think he got from a, a cookbook. But so that's all the extra information. <laughs> Girl, I you scraping like find. he was scraping for food. You exactly. scraping for material. Exactly. So you don't know nothing about this man is what you're I trying to say. I don't know nothing about this man. <laughs> all uh, right, Chris, thanks. Terry, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? <laughs> yeah, Chris, uh, write in if you're listening to the show, please. Let us know. Who is you? Who is you? Okay. <laughs> tell me. Give me a little bit more than that paragraph that I've been seeing all over the internet. Well, Alexis, can you give us a brief, no spoiler synopsis of Black Card, the book we're featuring today? A young man in a punk group struggles with his identity to be black enough. With the help of his friend and mentor, Lucius, he learns to understand the world and how he fits in. So, Kari, what were your first thoughts? So when you recommended the book, I had never heard of the author. So I went into it blind, which I actually like to do. I think that's one of my favorite things about the show. Uh, readers, if you don't know, the book that we're diving into, if I'm hosting the show, as I'm technically trying to do now, <laughs> then that means Alexis chose the book and she's going to dive deep into it. If she's hosting, then I chose the book and I'm going to dive into it. So she chose this week's book and I would have never picked it up because I didn't know it existed. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't have any thoughts about it. When I first started it, though, I thought this is going to be a very, um, what's that author? Uh, Chuck Pal- Palahniuk. I thought, oh, this is very Chuck Palahniuki. Well, I don't know you who know that what I'm is. Talking no. about. Okay, it don't matter. Okay, so what were your first thoughts of the book? <laughs> so when I saw the cover, uh, Black Card, it took me back to my um, my high school years where my brother created a card for me. <laughs> and I think it was a dipping card, something like that. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm a little older than you, so um, <laughs> the time span was different. But it was like... Um, permission to dip in, you know, a conversation. I like to show my card and dip in it. So my brother. So dip means like interrupt. Yeah. (laughs) Or eavesdrop into, yeah. I can get into Mm -hmm. a conversation. So he made that card for Mm -hmm. me and I remembered (laughs) it. And so the black card book made me think of that. And so I read a little bit and I'm like, oh, okay. I I just want to see what it's about. And so 
uh, one of my friends gave me her book to take back to the library. I think I mentioned this last week. And um, it was in there. And so I saw it. I was like, well, I'll give it a try. So what, did you take it back to the library and renewed it? No. Or took it out for yourself? I took it out for myself. I was about to say, I, did I you just never take her. it back to the library? Correct. <laughs> I have never taken the book back to the library. <laughs> I am reading it. I, I just... So does she have fees now? No, she don't have (laughs) fees. They just automatically renewed it because, you know, we're trying to protect ourselves. They know everybody ain't going out. So. Uh, Okay, cool. So it's mine. Well, thank you. Okay, Alexis. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Now, if you are ready for a spoiler filled, spoiler alert, deep dive into Black Card, take it away, Alexis. Okay, let me just start by saying I'm not ready, but I'll get started, okay? (laughs) Prologue, fall 1997. Our narrator, who we never learn his name, and you like it, I don't like it if I got to write about it. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I was telling you, I like when they, because I got to the end of the book and and didn't even notice he didn't give his name. Exactly, exactly. I was like, wait, what did this man's (laughs) name, though? Anyway, (laughs) so our narrator's in like the 10th grade and he's, He's reviewing like visual proof of his blackness with his friend Lucius before being given a black card. And after a series of events that stand as proof of his blackness, uh, for instance, making a basketball shot and giving daps um, to another player, laughing without showing his teeth and um, being told he's not understood by a white friend because he used the word axe instead of ask. Ask. Ask, but it's okay. Ask instead of ask. <laughs> our, na- our narrator grew up around white folks in the suburb somewhere north. Then he moved to an area where there were more black people. And Lucius tells us our narrator that he's come a long way because he stopped being teased by the basketball players in his history class for asking why they called each other shorty. <laughs> Yeah, so he's taken from this predominantly white environment. And then are you talking about uh, when his dad loses his job? Yep. Mm-hmm. They have to move to a predominantly black environment. And he's like a fish out of water. And he is supposed to be black, but he has no, he doesn't identify with black culture at all, even though he wants to. Yeah, he wants to, in fact, desperately. Um, so this, him receiving the black card is truly a big deal. And so, yeah, so Lucius takes out of his pocket a black card and hands it to him. And like it's your black brother, and gold. <laughs> yes. And I, it was laminated and everything. Okay. It was laminated. All right. I had a laminated card. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he takes out this black and gold card and hands it to him. And, it, you know, it's official. He's black. He's got it. That's but all it takes. That's, that's all it takes. <laughs> black card was written on the front in gold diamond encrusted capital letters i reached for it grinning so happy to be a real brother but lucius pulled it close to his chest oh look he turned my black card over in his hand as the music faded out brother he said and sized me up i puffed my chest and ran my tongue across the front of my teeth i hereby bestow you with this black card carry it with you as proof that you one of us because he squinted and started to read from the back of the card this card entitles the brother or sister who bears it to all black privileges, including but not limited to 
use of the N-word, permission to wear flip-flops and socks, extra large bottles of lotion, use of this card as a stand-in for the big joker in a spades game, and most important, a healthy and vocal skepticism of white folks, aka crackers, aka honkies, to be renewed in five years upon evaluation. He nodded reverently, then pressed the card into my outstretched palm. His voice shook when he said, do well, brother, do well. Smoke the biggest blunts, kick the illest rhymes, and even when you're out rolling around on that skateboard, remember that this, he folded my fingers over the card before taking his hand away, is yours. Socks, socks and sandals. Socks and sandals. Okay. That's right. Extra large bottles of lotion. Can't you see a black man? Socks and sandals with extra large, large bottle of lotion in his hand. I saw my daddy. What you talking about? <laughs> After our narrator receives his black card, he feels new and the world now makes sense. Lucius asks if they've had dinner yet and the narrator responds, N-word, hard E-R, we already ate. Lucius immediately corrects him and said, it's in with an A, not in hard E-R. I already hate this, okay? <laughs> we don't say it like that. This immediately reminds our narrator of times that he was scared to say the wrong thing around black people, which he felt proved he didn't belong. In addition to that, he liked rock music. He didn't go to church. Lucius warned him, maybe I was too quick in giving you this card. You got it now, but you got to maintain it. Part one, losing the black card. We're now in the summer of 2002. Our narrator is 21 and is in a punk band called Paper Fire. And he's on his way along with his white bandmates to a gig in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our narrator has a black father and a white mother. Lately, he felt like he was missing out on something. So he started kind of soaking up black culture. So again, they're riding along and they're having this in-car conversation about various things related to uh, black people. And so he's the only black friend in a group of white friends. Correct. And when they see him staring off in the back to the back of the car, they're like, what you doing? Black stuff. Which is like their inside joke. And he's like, should I even laugh about it? I'm so sick of this joke. <laughs> And then this conversation begins um, where he doesn't he's trying to pick his battles. But in his world, there are so many opportunities for battle that he doesn't know when to object. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And then this conversation starts. And then this conversation starts. Right. And so that's when the uh, the fancy car pulls up alongside uh, them matching the car speed, you know, like the uh, high speed chase on TV when the van door (laughs) opens up and Lucius exits the fancy car and jumps into the van. And then he stands up for um, our narrator and says, what did you just say, Saltine? And (laughs) Russell, which is uh, one of his bandmates and also his roommate, apologizes. And the narrator tries to smooth things over by saying, um, you know, just kind of calming what Lucius had just said. He's just trying Mm -hmm. to not to overdo it. He felt like Lucius maybe came on a little hard. The narrator has never dated a black woman, but he's crushing on a woman named Mona, who is a a black hippie. Um, She has uh, dreadlocks. She listens to folk music and she works with Russell and the narrator at their day job, which is a coffee shop. And the the narrator is really comfortable around black hippies because they remind him of his parents and kind of put him at ease. His dad. Yeah. Our narrator has full lips, a broad nose and cinnamon colored hair. 
black people can tell he's black, but when white people see his green eyes and freckles, they assume he's white and try to place him with what he calls the you look like game. And then most <laughs> commonly, he's uh, said to look like Kid from Kid and Play, <laughs> Justin Timberlake, <laughs> Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. And then Which, also, come on. You yeah. wish, but go ahead. That, even he said that. Even he said that. <laughs> and then even some random light-skinned guy they met or know. So. Yeah, like, oh, okay. So I have to interject here that this book did make me laugh out loud in multiple parts. And one of the parts was when he was saying how people approach him like, oh, I, oh you're black? I know a um, lighter-skinned black man in my friend's neighborhood. Do you know him? <laughs> and he's like, like all the high yellow Negroes got together and formed a community and we all just know each other. No, I don't know him. But he would never say it like that because of his, you know, timidness. Yeah. So he's just like, um, no, I, I don't actually. Yeah. But he sees being called light-skinned <laughs> as a blessing and a curse. So the narrator says being mistaken for white erases half of him and it happens so often that it makes him feel he's failed as a black person. Okay, so you mentioned that they were saying maybe there's this group where they all know each other and he said all mixed race people don't know each other. But he Mm -hmm. said, well, maybe that would be a good idea because then I'd have somebody to talk to about Mm -hmm. this stereotypical happy stuff that I um, experienced as part of his identity crisis. Yeah. So after the show is over, the narrator and Lucius are sitting at the table selling T-shirts and CDs. And the narrator tells Lucius he hasn't seen him in a while. And Lucius blames the narrator because he's gone off and received his black card and he just figured he was settled in his blackness now that he has his black card. But Lucius tells the narrator that you got to know you're black and that the rest will fall in place. Lucius tells him that every time he sees him with white people, it's like he's running away from being black. Okay. All right. So the plan is to party and stay at the home of one of the locals. And so one of the locals is also has their own band. And I think it's called um, Caddis, which is, well, I won't even try to guess what that is but it's they have their own band and one of the band members is JJ and so he's invited um our narrator's band to come stay at his house um, he lives with his father and his younger brother and as they speak about the activities for the the next day you know what are you going to do are you going to stay and enjoy the town a little bit or are you just heading right back they're like nah we may do this or that um but we may hang out at the beach but we won't be doing any surfing so the younger brother ask if he could use JJ's board because he is broke. He's broken his. And the father says, if you don't get that thing fixed, you're going to sink like an N word in the water. The boy responds by saying, you know, I swim better than an N word. Lucius was ready to pounce. The narrator looks away, avoiding the eyes of his bandmates who waited for him to respond. And during that time, as he's thinking about what could he say, what might say, how the situation is falling upon him at that moment, he feels like the moment passes. How did you feel about the narrator in this situation? I was concerned for his black heart um, staying with him. (laughs) I was concerned for his life. Why are you hanging out with these people that won't defend you? Um, that don't know necessarily know that you're black. And so they feel free to throw around racism. Um, and you catch it and they feel like you should defend yourself. 
Just like I didn't like somebody touching your hair, someone who I'm sure I love. Yeah. But they was touching your hair and I didn't like the situation. (laughs) And I spoke up, which was not my place, actually. But um, his friends should have spoken up for him in that situation. And we all leaving. Yeah. You want to throw around the N word? We can sleep in a car. Yeah. And so (laughs) who actually spoke up? We don't have to stay here. Who actually spoke up was um, JJ's bandmate. And his name was Tim. And he said... I know a bar. That's all he said. And they got up and laughed. So he diffused the situation, but he didn't speak up and say it was wrong. Right. And right. So they all let our narrator doesn't have anyone in his life to defend him in that way. And truthfully, he is a grown man and should be able to defend himself. But he's like in this in between stage. He's probably like 21 now. Yep, 21. So he's 21 now. He dropped out of college and has kind of just been listlessly floating through life. Um, working at a coffee shop and then touring with his punk band, punk rock band, but he doesn't have any direction right? and he doesn't know where to meet anyone. That's part of his, that part of his culture, any black people. And so he just takes what he gets in life. He's not a a proactive member of society in any way. (laughs) Right. You know, exactly. One thing um, that JJ said, whose father it was, he just kind of, you know, kind of called him out. Dad. Yeah, he was embarrassed. Yeah, mm-hmm. by what his father was saying, because it was clear then that it was okay to use that at home. Yeah, so this is a word y'all throw around because y'all racist. Mm-hmm. But maybe you don't identify like that as your parent does, and so you don't want you know your new black friend to see your race, your parent being racist. I can understand that. Actually, I was judgmental of everyone in the situation. But, oh sure. Um, I, I think that's probably a problem too. Telling people what you should do as a black person. So. Uh, maybe I shouldn't judge because I've always had friends of uh, different races and he didn't. He didn't have access to the community either. Where was his family? Where was like his cousins and play cousins and aunties and uncles? Yeah, I don't that the book doesn't include them at all in the story. Other than that, yeah. um, a, a certain sections of the book, do they only yeah. talk about his parents, but not the extra relations? And then one time he so visited his father's friend. Right. So that's got to be a lonely way to to grow up but go ahead go ahead a lonely way at least for that part of you oh yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense well sure because this man was struggling with his blackness yes so they leave there they go to the bar and they arrive at the bar and lucius pulls um the narrator aside to kind of charge him up about his inaction in the backyard and the narrator explains he did not know what to do and then he asks what should he have done he asked lucius what should he have done lucius told him just hand over the card hand it over <laughs> i don't even want to talk about it just give me a black card exactly. you lost it in that moment <laughs> you, it's over it's over your blackness is done <laughs> the narrator knew that every other chance he'd blown before this day had led up to this moment. The narrator heads to the bar and it's karaoke night at a country bar. So at this point, he feels defeated because he's lost his black card and is determined to get it back. So the narrator tries to think of how he could turn this all white country bar experience into a black experience. In the bar, Russell says, so those people were real hicks, huh? The narrator says, you mean racist? without coding that moment with nervous laughter as he typically does. And he lingers in that pause from Russell that essentially makes Russell uncomfortable. He's now identifying himself as an angry ex-black man. (laughs) Because his black heart was taken. Because his black heart was taken. (laughs) The narrator asks Russell what he should have done, to which Russell says, hey, Hicks are Hicks. What will telling them that they're racist going to do? 
narr- the narrator regrets not asking Russell what he should have done, what Russell should have done. Instead of what should I have done? What should you have done? Exactly. My friend, mm-hmm. my so-called friend. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> Mason, who is our narrator's roommate and bandmate. And he, he walks up and he says, we might as well enjoy something tonight. He decides to, um, since it's karaoke night, he looks through the book to see what he could perform. Again, he's trying to turn this white uh, bar into a black experience. So he decides on run DMCs. It's tricky um, for karaoke. So he does an amazing job. The crowd loves it. He's like, oh, I should get my black car back because <laughs> I can sing <laughs> 80s hip hop. <laughs> yeah, but he said he couldn't get too excited because people might think he never does that. <laughs> he actually doesn't do that all the time. So the people are so excited. So a couple of women come up to him and is like, hey, we got another song for you. You got to do this with us because we love it. We think you did such a great job. <laughs> Let's do Baby Got Back. Let's do Baby Got Back. <laughs> and then another song. So they get up and do um, Baby Got Back. And he enjoys that. And the crowd enjoys that. And then they want to sign him up for another song. So he's really feeling good about himself. And so then this couple walks up to him and invites him to stay at their house for the evening. But Mason decides it's time to go. I thought that was actually a little weird. I don't know. What about you? So the thing is, the tension in this um scene is hard to explain if you've never been um, the minority in a situation. Uh, So there's a thing about black people in white spaces and safety. Uh, Yes, our narrator is rapping along to Sir Mix-a-Lot on the stage while these women grind on him. But truthfully, uh, he didn't want to rap the song. <laughs> they chose right. it for him because he rapped the first one so well. And they're like, we have a black guy in here. We we didn't know you were black. Now that we know you're black, let's do black stuff. And we're going to um, grind on you while you rap. And so he's like, and they're grinding on me off beat. And first of all, I don't want to do this, but I'm not strong like, enough to say no. Yeah. And you know, you hitting my knees. He's yeah. Like the back of his knees. <laughs> so this is weird. But then also like, where's your Where's husband? your husband? Where is your if husband? If your husband came in right now and saw this, would I be dead? He is super uncomfortable. And then that couple is soliciting him. Yes. <laughs> they are. They are. So it is a couple, a white couple, and they want him to stay with them um, because they are propositioning him. So he is in a situation where no one is there to defend him and he's not strong enough to defend himself and he's being used as a puppet. Sing and dance. And then, you know, maybe even more. So he's like, mm, yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah. So as soon as Mason <laughs> says, let's go, he's like walked away. Okay, bye now. And he's not in a a cosmopolitan area where he like you might think why don't he just get an uber and go home uh he's broke like really broke he doesn't live with his parents and then they're in the south and you know you can get kind of miles and miles in between civilization yeah (laughs) so he's not near anybody Mm -hmm. Uh, he has to leave with who he came with yeah so uh, they jump in the van and head out and on the trip home the narrator wakes up to his bandmate uh, Mason and uh, Russell singing a rap song and they're constantly saying the N-word. The narrator interjects and says, haven't we heard that word enough tonight? And he then tells them that he doesn't like hearing white people say that word. Because even though he didn't respond, he couldn't tell those women no that wanted him to dance on stage. He did feel like he could speak up at this point. Because at this point, I, I repeat, he has lost his black heart. And he is (laughs) he's with his friends. Mm -hmm. So he feels freer to tell them, I don't like that. I don't like when y'all say the N word, even to music. You too happy saying it. Yeah. 
It's like you put the song on just so you could say it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's never drawn this line with his white bandmates before because he's always scared that Russell was, is going to say, dude, but you're half white. Yeah. Uh, he asks his bandmates if they ever heard him using the word. And they respond, it's on the radio. He said, I don't care. You sound too happy saying it. He exits the vehicle and he's um, hoped he's done enough to get his black heart back. But Lucius is like, not today. <laughs> Part two, childhood memories. The narrator reminisces about on his childhood. He went to school with predominantly white students. Most of the black students were part of a program where they were bused in the school. His white friends um, would ask him if he was a part of that program, even though they knew his dad dropped him off every day. He lived in a neighborhood. He went to their parties. With them. He played soccer <laughs> with them. He was in their lives as their friend. But yet and still, they asked him, was he a part of this um, program where you get bust in? When he started skipping class with these two black students, the white teacher told him, people will judge you by who you hang around. Um, people notice these things. So that was immediately pointed out to him. His first introduction to the word wigger um, was a boy named John Donahue. And this, I believe, was in his high school uh, years. And he was described as acting black. And our narrator was ex excited to kind of finally hear this word because he felt like it applied to him, a white person who acts black. His white skater friend at the time He's said so mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't apply to him because he didn't act black. <laughs> and this <laughs> is about the same time that he uh, met Lucius, um, his first fall in Richmond. Lucius served as his way of blacking up. Uh, shortly thereafter, he joined his first punk band and his skater friend took him to a punk show and he could forget everything else. Yeah, he loves the punk rock scene because you didn't he didn't feel like he had to pose. Yeah, he could just be who he was. Yep. So Lucius would come along to the shows and kind of linger in the back. Um, and then he would also start to see less of Lucius. When he would see uh, Lucius, Lucius would kind of uh, clown him for trying to sidestep race. Our narrator, um, as we mentioned earlier, dropped out of college because he felt like playing music with his friends. Um, he was making his own world. His band even did a month long tour. And it should be said that their tours are piling into a van and sometimes playing at houses or in basements. So they're not like selling out venues. No. They might be the starting act at a small venue, but some of these venues are like houses and basements. This is not what I'm trying to say is a career. <laughs> yeah. If I can get mama on him right quick, real mama like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get a life. Yeah. Do something because this ain't it. Yeah. This has been cute at 15, but you're 21 now. So yeah. what you going to do? So part three, Mona Lisa. One day <laughs> while working with Mona, as we mentioned, this a black hippie that he works with and he's crushing on. He learns she learns that the narrator never has sushi. So she invites him to her place so she can make him some for him to try. The narrator is nervous about going to a black woman's house for the first time. He's never dated a black woman and he thinks this might be a date. So he asked Lucius about how he was supposed to act, what he's supposed to do, if anything different, because Mona is black. Lucius suggests, <laughs> how about tap dance? <laughs> Sarcastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a real brother would let her fix him a plate and not help with the dishes. So, <laughs> and not sarcastically, he says that. Yeah. So these are the kind of <laughs> suggestions he's getting. But again, that tap dancing was a uh, um, sarcasm. The narrator felt <laughs> like um, he was on his way to getting his black card back because now he's, you know, 
He going to a sister house. Like, sister yeah, house. that's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. At Mona's house, <sighs> they roll their own sushi. After they finish eating, he finds a, a bit of common ground with Mona as she speaks about a time when she went camping with her dad. Um, this helps him loosen up a little bit. He then offers to help with the dishes and she says, uh, no, nah, don't worry about it. And they head into the living room and to be leisure and also smoke. The narrator hopes Mona will sit on the couch and invite him to sit next to her, but she doesn't. The narrator asks Mona if, if she ever caught crap for being different. And she responds, not lately. High school ended a while ago. And while she says nothing much happened, she recognizes that that was a time when people were extra worried about fitting in. And the narrator is like, well, good. Um, good for you for getting over that. And she says, good for you. Like, <laughs> did you get over it? But mm-hmm. Mona tells the narrator, he seems like somebody who, who does his own thing. And while that's not easy to do, it's pretty cool. So this is what Mona is saying to the narrator and he returns the compliment but says but you're black and you have a lot of white friends and you just use the word litmus test or smart words and i wish i knew more people who were not scared to say smart stuff like that he says so mona asked him if he he asked if he thinks um her roommate who's white um and others are making black jokes or something and she tells him that her friends are her friends and they wouldn't do anything like that so she is, um, in his mind, this black unicorn that is like a beatnik hippie type that's um, black and not and he, he can't identify her with what he knows about black culture. So his view about what it means to be black doesn't apparently involve using smart words, right. which is, you know, unfortunate. So to him, she's like such a unique person. Obviously, she, too, must catch all the grief that he catches from his friends. And she's like, no, because they wouldn't be my friends if they were to if they were racist. Exactly. That's that's your problem. Yeah. And and so (laughs) not mine. So he's able to see in her that you can be an individual and be black. (laughs) We're all individuals. You know, we're not a monolith, as people like to say. Yeah. She said maybe she'd come to a concert that they're having tomorrow and kind of hang out since she knows that both Russell and him, both of her workmates are in a band. She figured that's something she should see. And then she says to him that um, you're not really punk because you don't have a mohawk and stuff. And the narrator responds, well, you're not really black. And he felt like um, this would be funny. (laughs) And at one point. It would. uh, aid him in getting his black card back because he's calling out somebody else for not being black enough. But he ended up feeling like a a fool because Mona informed him if this right here, all of this, this woman right here, if this ain't black, I don't know what it is. (laughs) She says, if this ain't black, I don't know what it is. So he immediately apologizes because he feels like a fool. And Mona asks, why do you keep asking me all these questions? And he admits he's always feel pulled between these two worlds and he's just he's obsessed with blackness with being black enough and his identity yeah. and yeah mm-hmm. he's got a lot of hang-ups yeah and he's wondered if she's ever had those experiences because she was cool and and you mentioned it earlier Kari she was cool she was different and she was comfortable with it Mona said don't talk um you don't you obviously don't talk to enough black people you don't have enough association with them to know that like you said being black is not a monolith right she, he said he um, Mona asked him, has he ever dated a black girl? And he said, do mixed girls counts? Mona's like, I don't know. Do they? Mona told him that the really black stuff that he's hearing about, it's wrong. 
There isn't one way to be black. Everyone who is black is black. Even mixed nuts like you, she says. Um, She said, there's no such thing as really black. And you're black too. So Mona's roommate comes in and Mona tells our narrator that she has to get up early for work. They hug, but the narrator leans in for a kiss and Mona's like, not right now. So he hits it. Okay, so their whole date is cute, right? They're they're sitting to eat sushi, then they sit and talk. He's a bit of a creep. I mean, he is below her just in the fact that he has no direction in life and he's a grown man without any prospects. And she actually is on a path to um, a life that would allow her to take care of herself <laughs> and pursue a passion. <laughs> um, so that was my only thing. And then he he's obsessed with this identity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but when he goes in for a kiss... She didn't completely rebuff him. She's just letting him know not right now. She seemed to like him. Yeah, she. I think she absolutely believes she likes him. It's just like, I. one, I felt like that was a little forward. He didn't need to lean in for a kiss. Um, there wasn't a date. Yeah, they were it, just getting together. It a date it, date. It yeah, they were just sitting as friends. They were yeah, just sitting right. as friends. So I thought that was a little much, but. Yeah, he was eager to do that, but he ain't going to be eager to shut down some racism right in front of his face. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, (laughs) moving along. Part four, bicycle and why black? As the narrator bikes home from Mona's house, he meets up with Lucius and he gives Lucius a ride on his handlebars. And the narrator asks Lucius if he played it well. Lucius lets him know she definitely knows how you feel. We don't know your chances. I mean, I can't tell you how this is going to play out. If she wants it to happen, y'all get together. Worst case, you got somebody to talk to and keep you talking. This made the narrator feel good because he really did enjoy talking to um, Mona. He said that he was building a black community. So (laughs) as they were um, riding along, the narrator mentions that uh, Mona doesn't seem hung up on having a black card or being black enough. And Lucius told him, well, that's why you like her. And as they continue riding along, he almost runs into a piece of delivery car. And then as he speeds up, he blows through a stop sign and the siren goes off and he's being pulled over by the police as he stops and kind of pulls over because he's thinking the police are coming for uh, somebody else. He pulls over and he comes to a stop. Lucius flies off the handlebars and then runs into the darkness. The cop car pulls in front of him and the officer tells him, rolls down the window and tells him to pull out his ID and explains to him that he's being pulled over for blowing through that uh, stop sign. The only thing that goes through his mind are all the incidents of police brutality. And he hoped that the cop would read him as white, even though he felt guilty about that thought. Um, he recalled what Lucius told him. If five old things you're white, let them save yourself a whooping. The officer ends up writing him a ticket for blowing through the stop sign and reminds him that the same laws apply to all vehicles on the road. And so when um, the narrator tries to snatch the ticket from him, he misses and um, the officer feels like he's drunk. So he wants him to step off the bike and take a breathalyzer test. So he takes the breathalyzer and the cops decide that he can't be on the street um, because uh, he needs to sleep it off. I think he had like a beer too at Mona's house. Maybe a beer Two and beers. a half. Okay. But the officer puts him in the car. He doesn't pat him down or anything. He just throws him in the car. He still has his phone on him and he leaves his bike behind. And the, he's like, what, what about my bike? Listen, the officer told him he can't have it. He left it on the street and he back 
backed into his bike and drove off. <laughs> the officer put him in the car. While he's in the car, he recognizes the driver as John Donahue, the kid that was called a wigger in high school. And he asks him to let him off for high school's sake. But John ignores him. He still has his phone. So he texts Mason, his roommate and bandmate, and asks him to come pick up the bike from the location. But don't call him because he's in the back of a cop car. Donahue um, took him into the station and he was put into a cell. Anyway, the phone rings while he's his phone, his cell phone rings while he's in the uh, the cell with all these other gents. And he tries to answer it quickly because he's kind of startled by it. And his wallet flies. And then the, the cellmates try to grab his phone so they can make phone calls for their own cells. And so he's trying to fight them off. And then the officers come up to the cell and threaten um, all of them with being tased and they see his phone and ask him how he got that contraband in and they pull him out to an interrogation room and he tells them that Donahue brought him in there never searched him and his wallet is back in the cell and he's released in the morning when they come back they give him um, his uh, cell phone and wallet he decides that instead of going home to sleep it off he's going to go to the coffee shop and see Mona before he um before he, but before he heads to the coffee shop, he goes to see if his uh, bike is there. And it turns out it's not there. Part five, Mona, part two. When he arrives at the coffee shop, he's hoping to see Mona, but Mona's not there. Instead, he sees Russell. Russell tells him someone broke into Mona's apartment and, a try, and tried to assault her, but she was able to get him off of her and she, the guy stabbed her before he ran away. He thought Russell was joking, but Russell explained that Mona called from the hospital at 4 a.m. Russell said, you were over there last night. And the narrator was like, well, yeah, I left at 10 and I didn't see anything. Russell reminded the narrator that there was a show that evening. And while he was telling him about the show, the narrator was thinking about the best way to communicate with Mona to try to check and see if she was OK. Um, he didn't want to be too forward, but he wanted to reach out to her. So he decides to text her. But then he realizes that he really should have called her. But he's still worried about overkill. So he had so many hangups that prevented him from doing anything other than texting. The narrator heads home, calls the police about to report his stolen bike. Um, and then is ab about to smoke when Lucius stops over and the narrator asks, what kind of friends run off when a friend is in a bind? And Lucius like, I wouldn't have been a no help with the police. No, how? So Mason comes home while our narrator and Lucius is there. And Mason tells him he tells Mason what happened. And Mason said um, he did try to get the bike, but it wasn't there when he got it when he got there and the narrator doesn't seem to believe um, Mason. Remember. Did you believe him? No, I didn't believe him. Did you? Me yeah, no, no, not at all. I don't <laughs> think he even tried to go get that. Mm -mm. Mason um, reminds him that there's a house show um, later that night. And so he's got a lot of stuff on his mind. Our narrator does. He's thinking about what happened to Mona. Um, so he's drinking, right? So he's drinking with his friends and, you know, he still has his hangups with, his identity and he's drinking and he's drinking a lot and he's drinking so much that when it's time for his band to perform, he doesn't really, he doesn't perform well. In fact, he, in fact, he breaks a string on his um, guitar. guitar. He trips yeah. over chords. He tumbles into his amp. I, I, I think he bumped into the drums too. He's a mess. Then he ends up vomiting 
The next few days, a couple of black friends of Mona come to meet her at the coffee shop. And when Mona arrives, she thanks Russell for coming to visit her. And our narrator kind of overhears that Russell has gone to visit Mona and he feels some type of way. Mona asks the narrator to speak to the police because she's given them her number. They got some questions for him. So he goes to talk to the police and is he sitting there? It becomes clear that it's possible that Mona may imply that he has something to do with it. So he starts to feel uncomfortable and they ask for a DNA uh, sample um, just as a process of elimination. So the narrator begins to question. He's like, "Um, you know, I didn't do this right. And they say, why would you say that? And they said, he says, because you're um, asking me more questions about where I was um, than about what I saw. And they tell him they'll be in touch. Part six, flash black. So he does, I'm sorry, submit to a DNA test. Two lessons, kids. Don't talk to the police without a lawyer present and never submit a sample of your DNA without the advice of your lawyer. Correct. That's all. I know you just want to help because you didn't do anything. He felt like I didn't do anything and I just want to help them find who caught so-and-so. Right. Listen, just, just get a lawyer. Just call a lawyer. Part six, flash black. The narrator (laughs) takes us back to a time when he got in trouble for skateboarding. He got in trouble for skateboarding in a pot in a parking lot and he was brought home by the cops. His dad was mad at the cops. um, And he said, are they charging him with anything or giving him a ticket for anything? And once they said no, he was like, well, thank you. Okay, bye. Part seven, Mona Lisa, part three. The narrator worked with Mona two days um, after he spoke to the cops. I think he felt like she was avoiding him. Um, He told her that he spoke to the police. She thanked him and asked if they said anything about what they were looking for. And she said, just what I told him after um, a brief interruption, she told him what happened that night and explained how Bree had called 911 and that they came and took her to the hospital. And she stayed in the hospital one night and then went to her parents. The narrator asked what the perp looked like. And Mona admitted that because he was on her mind, the narrator was on her mind. She may have given the police um, a description that sounded like him. And Lucius tells the narrator, you know, all the negative stuff they say about us in the media, sometimes that gets into our own mm-hmm. heads and we look at each other like criminals. Ooh, yeah, I remember so that. that was a don't be too hurt about yeah. it. Yeah. And that for a second, she didn't think it was him, but she knew he because she knew he'd never do. Our narrator would never do something like that. And of course, the narrator says, no, of course, I wouldn't do that. But the narrator was concerned that everyone thought he was involved. She didn't tell them that he did it. But the police pointed out that he matched the description. And she doesn't seem 100 percent sure in her heart that it wasn't right. him. So she is avoiding his eyes and nervous around him and, you know, all that stuff, which no doubt hurts him because this was a girl he has a crush mm-hmm. on. In anger, he tells Mona um, she shouldn't be dragging him into her stuff. And um, Mona, however, says, how would I know? You come to my house, you try to kiss me, you leave a few hours later and somebody tries to attack me. Then you send me a text message when I'm in the hospital. But I got a guy like Russell who comes to visit me. How am I supposed to think you're the good guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he should have went to see her. I thought that was weird, Mm -hmm. too. The minute Mona told the cops about him, 
He never, ever doubted that he was black, no matter where he was. He realizes that his experiences were black, even though they weren't the ones he'd seen on TV and pieced together from Lucius. So in a weird way, this whole terrible situation confirms his blackness to him in his mind. Right. We later find out that the cops had already identified someone as a possible um, perpetrator. And so they were on the lookout for him. And yeah, they're letting our narrator believe that he's a possible suspect. But in their minds, they already have an idea of who it probably is. Exactly. And so later we find that they find the perpetrator dead in an abandoned house with a needle near him. And Mona, Mona tells the narrator that she's put in her notice and that she'll be taking off a semester to do the D.C. internship that she had mentioned to him earlier. Part eight, the beatdown. So our narrator is now getting ready to do another event. And this is going to be a a house party where the band from North Carolina, where we met J.J. and his racist father, they're coming to um, Richmond to perform and they're going to perform at Russell's house, I guess in a basement or something. And so while they're yeah, JJ's band, so JJ's band is coming and he's, he decides he wants to talk to our narrator and Lucius is with him. And so JJ asked if he's pissed about his, JJ asked our narrator if he's pissed about his family using the N word. And the narrator says, I thought all white people spoke like that. And JJ, um, um, said they didn't but he does try to tell and the narrator's being sarcastic and jj says he does try to talk to his family about using that word but they just don't listen he said you must have been pissed he said he was but it wasn't because he was black his bandmates were pissed too jj say wait what you black the cops show up and john donahue again that's the cop that arrested him he grabs him out Puts him in the car and then the narrator tells John, you didn't give me a ticket that night. And Donahue told him he couldn't go on telling police business like that, even if you're trying to get an officer in trouble, because it ain't no good for you. And the officer kind of beats him up. I mean, he don't kind of. He does beat him. He just yeah, beats, he beats him, him up. to a pulp. He tells him, you know, in school, I was called names for liking black stuff. And look at you. You're actually black and you're wasting your blackness. I stumbled on a cobblestone, then faced Donahue, who spun me by the wrist and took off the cuffs. The park was empty and quiet, save for the hum of the cruiser's engine behind me and the crunch of my sneaker in the pebbles as I turned back around. Streetlights sprinkled through the trees, casting the bottom half of Donahue's face in yellowish light as he reached for his belt and I flinched. No bang, no pain. He pulled off his holster and dropped it and the cuffs on the car trunk. I waited for him to speak as he stepped back to me. He shifted his weight, then a white fist appeared in the dark a foot from my face. Stars dripped from the night and my tailbone found an extra pointy rock to land on. It happened so fast that heat, snot, and tears were still rushing to my cheek and eye when he said, get up. Then immediately reached for me, hooked a hand under my armpit and pulled me forward. Stick man wanna be all sorts of stuff. Donahue was fighting back a yell. Black people call me that, still do. My balance was off. A fist I never saw crushed into my gut. As I folded, that first fist popped me again and I fell reeling sideways this time, landing in a fetal position with my butt pointed at Donahue, who kicked it hard enough for me to skid a couple of inches across the ground, thankfully away from him. Kick in the shin, sharp pain up my leg with an undercurrent of ache in the bone. A heavy shoe came to rest on my side between ribs and hip. 
I loved Wu-Tang, he muttered. Wasted, yo, Black. Donahue shook his head, backlit. With a grunt, he stood and pulled me up with him. You could have done more, he said. I could have faked it. I slurred, wavering back and forth. Hmm? He cocked an ear to me, so sure I wasn't going to hit him. I wanted nothing more than to do it. Nothing, I said, spitting and falling toward him. He took a quick half step back like a country line dancer. My face met his fist when I was at a 45 degree angle from the ground. I twisted and dropped. Try to help you out and this is how it goes, he said. Stay down. And you don't want to go back to that party because I'm about to. I took a long blink, then a quaking breath. A car door slammed and an engine revved and I lay there near the little wall feeling like I had a dozen hearts beating double time in each place where he'd hit me or I'd hit the ground. The next day they're at a cafe and Russell told um, our narrator that he was worried and he wondered if everything was going okay. The narrator tells him that he got beat up by Donahue, the cop, and Russell asks what he did what the narrator did. And the narrator says, why does it always have to be something that I did? Russell then says, quit acting like the world's out to get you. Don't let this affect your job and your band. So he's really feeling, our narrator is really feeling some type of way about a response from someone he considers a a, a close friend. Part nine, Magical Lucius. It has been a week since he missed the show. And when people ask about his face and they say, yeah, because he looks like he got yeah. beat up. How does the other guy look? The narrator would say, like a cop. So the narrator soon finds out that the band has moved on without him. And one of their former friends has replaced him as the bassist in their shows. He's been kicked out. No hard feelings. Just moving on. You know, showed you were drunk. It's starting to be a problem. They pick somebody else. So one day Lucius shows up and after not seeing him since the police incident, our narrator says, where you been? You could have pulled me off of Russell's um, from getting beat up. The narrator tells Lucius that the fact that he didn't stand up for him could be a reason that he, Lucius, could lose his black card. And Lucius told him, I don't have a black card. I never did. I made that (laughs) up for you. You were asking so many questions. I thought this might help you. Lucius had the narrator's black card in his hand and he grabbed it. The narrator realized he got what he'd been trying to get, but it wasn't what he wanted at all. Being black isn't a club. There's no ins and outs. You'll, you'll always, he's always been black. And so having the black card doesn't make him feel more black. Outside, I turned from locking the front door and Lucius was bending my black card with his thumb and forefinger. I jumped over to grab it. Give me that. The card looked janky and faded in the daylight. Standing on the porch, I turned it over and reread the black privileges on the back. Some of them made sense, like maintaining a healthy skepticism of white folks and use of the N-word. But some of it seemed silly, like the stuff about flip-flops and socks. I got what I'd been trying to get, but it wasn't what I wanted. Being black isn't a club, I told Lucius. There are no ins and outs. We're all in all the time, he said. You don't really need black lessons from me. The world's a black lesson. So what do I do now? I asked. There's no there's no black cards. So what am I working toward? Being the you that you want to be. So I say do what you've been doing, he said. Like when you said your piece to that boy from North Carolina the other day. Thanks, I said. Then wince, remembering JJ's confusion at my blackness. You think it changed anything? More than if you ain't said nothing, said Lucius. 
But for the time you spend converting a single redneck, five more are born. Lucius, I expected to feel different, I said. What? He asked. Being black, I said. You always been black. Why would that feel different now? He asked. White people want you to think it feels different because they think it would. That's how they justify treating us worse. You're you. Only thing that should feel different is that you're always kind of mad. Why didn't you tell me this a few years ago? Could have saved me some grief. You needed to figure it out for yourself, Lucius said. You weren't there yet. We weren't talking like this back then. Lucius tell, then tells him the story of a magical Negro. It, they're in movies. They're in TV shows. It's where a black character. They're in books. <laughs> they're in books. <laughs> where there's a black character and the only reason that they're there is to help the white folks. Maybe they're a cool old man and they have some sage advice. And sometimes they actually have some mystical ability and can make white people good at sports or dancing. In movies, they disappear when the work is done. But a magical Negro's work is never done. We won't disappear, he said. So this is a theme that comes up in a lot of um, art is the black person that comes and is like the deus ex machina to conveniently fixes everything for everyone. Um, so this is a trope that is brought up a lot and made fun of in a lot of black art and sketch shows and things like that. But the magical Negro is not made up from this book. It is a real thing, a real trope in literature, art, movies, all that. He said the magical Negro's work is never done. We don't disappear. And the narrator says, we. And Lucia says, what do you think I am? The narrator admits he's always known that people couldn't see Lucius, but they never talked about it. Because he didn't want Lucius to go away. So Lucius was his invisible friend that helped him find his way and understand his version of blackness. The end. Let's take a quick break. Okay, Kari. So I I got through that one. Um, I I sure appreciate your help. But um, <laughs> what's your final verdict? Would you recommend this book? Okay, so I didn't feel like reading a book about the tragic mixed child, which is another thing that's brought up in our culture a lot. Um, and I, I didn't feel like reading about what it means to be black so much and all the issues that this boy carried um, because he never I was able to identify with his culture and he always wanted to be black enough and never felt black enough. I, I just didn't feel like it. But as I forced myself through it toward the middle of the book, I was really seeing the validity in this experience and how I'm sure there are a lot of people who are not just uh, mixed people or um, black people, but even white people who just don't feel like they identify with their culture. They don't feel enough. Um, and that can come from people of that culture, gatekeepers telling you this is how you're supposed to act if you're part of our culture. And if you don't act this way, then you're not really a part of our culture. So the end um, moral of the story, I appreciate it being, no, you are what you are. And in the end, he's like, you know what? Uh, maybe I need a new job and maybe I need to go to school and maybe I need to start growing up. And maybe this, what I'm putting all on Lucius, this uh, magical Negro that I've created, I need to start realizing this isn't real. I am me and I have to take responsibility for the decisions I make. I can't, um, you know, just hang out in 
my adolescent mind with all its insecurities. It's time to grow up, especially if I'm gonna have to deal with a, a judicial system. I gotta get it together. <laughs> um, so when did you figure out that Lucius was not real, by the way? Um, so I had challenges with Ru- uh, Lucius throughout the book. I was like, wait, what? where did Lucius come from? I, I, don't, I do not remember talking. Okay, well, maybe I missed something. Okay, so <laughs> I did not know Lucius was fake until he told me Lucius was fake. What? I just, so I knew at the bar, I knew when he pulled up to the car and they drove to that bar where he was singing karaoke. Mm-hmm. I knew then, because Lucius, first of all, his name is Lucius. <laughs> and then he's at this bar drinking cognac while everyone's drinking beer. And when um, the narrator is going through all these scenes that are frightening him when he's like got these women grinding on him and he feels like what you know your husband could come in and kill me at any second Lucius doesn't tell him hey let's just go let's just stand outside you and me Mm -hmm. and then there's a part before they even walk in where him and Lucius is having a conversation and the way that the narrator describes people who are looking at them a man like drives up looks at him gives him a nod Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I understand what's happening here just because I've seen it so much and I've seen it before um, in other literature. So I knew that that Lucius wasn't real (laughs) at that point. And then it was just solidified in every interaction that they had going forward. No one else talks to Lucius. And then, I mean, (laughs) go ahead, go ahead. I mean, Alexis, when um, uh, our narrator goes to the police station and is talking about Mona's situation, Lucius is there with him. You thought that was really Lucius? (laughs) In the interrogation room? Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. So I am not familiar with magical Negro stories at all. So No, this this isn't about a magical Negro at this point. No, listen to me. I'm not mm -hmm. familiar with the idea. Okay. So again, the it was a true revelation to me. I thought a lot of scenes were weird where they're talking about Lucius and I'm like, but that don't make sense. But I didn't (laughs) connect that to the magical Negro theory or that idea at all because again it's a relatively new concept for me. Okay, and to be clear, the magical Negro is not a character that no one can see but the um but the protagonist. That is not what a magical Negro is. That's just how it, he played out in this book. This is an invisible friend in this book. But that has nothing to do with his magical Negroness. So a magical Negro just comes in and fixes everything for everybody. Right. This, this is just was a thing where yeah, this invisible was um friend. Yeah, this was an invisible friend. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, my final verdict is that I thought this was a toll. I kind of feel like because we don't know anything about the author, maybe this is partly autobiographical. And so I felt like this type of story, this viewpoint, this uh, POV was worth reading. And I thought it was told well, actually, I felt uncomfortable with the narrator as was intended. And then when they're looking for whoever assaulted Mona, and I realized that the police officer never gave our narrator a ticket. I'm like, oh, they're going to get him for it. And I Mm -hmm. felt some some fear for his life then. Mm -hmm. Um, So my final word, if I have to give it like a star count or whatever, I would give it three and a half out of five closer to four so 3.75 I enjoyed reading this book it made me laugh out loud in a lot of parts there's some dark humor there that's done really well I thought even though I knew right away uh, basically that Lucius wasn't real 
that wasn't the twist. So it didn't spoil anything for me. That was kind of like the point in the story for you to know he wasn't real and that he was putting all these black stereotypes onto this fake character that he carried way past adolescence, far longer than he should have. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes you feel some sorrow for the the narrator too, which was the point, I think, of the author's point. So final verdict, yes, I enjoyed it and I would recommend it to some. Now there is language, so I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, um, but I could see the validity in this, this storytelling, this point of view. What about you? What's your final verdict and would you recommend this book? So um, as I was reading the book, Again, I, I didn't know anything about the author. Uh, I, I, when I originally listed the book, I thought it was fiction. And then when I got to the end, if you may, if you allow me, I found out it was a fiction book. And I said, oh, 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 this was made up. OK, well, listen, this sounds like it's about him. I'm going to go with that. And this is our author's real story because it is based on his life. It does say that I did read that this is based on his life. So I'm a, I'm just going to go with that. So. I did enjoy reading it. The language was harsh. I felt like for myself and um, I would not recommend it to everybody I know, but it is a book I would um, recommend to some. All right. So what are we reading next week, Alexis? Dapper Dan's Made in Harlem. That's right. Um, thank you for listening to Lit Society, readers. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple five Podcasts, <laughs> along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Love us. We love y'all too. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing free newsletter. And until next time, read, read something. 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 <laughs> <laughs>